Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Close Talking. Oh my god, I am Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am Jack Rossiter-Munley. And this is Close Talking. Close Talking. Um, Okay, we have a wonderful poem today. Poem is A Woman Without a Country by Even Boland. Um, And just a little context about Even Boland before I read the poem. She was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1944. Um, And she's considered... Um, one of the great Irish poets uh, alive today, um, there's a sort of rudimentary Irish, quote-unquote Irish canon uh, that's very male-centric, that in- starts with Yeats, then goes to Patrick Cavanaugh, and then goes to Seamus Heaney. Um, she has lived longer than Seamus Heaney and is killing it and has written a lot about um, the sort of the patriarchal Irish literary landscape and has has dedicated a lot of her writing to uh, writing against that. And this poem is a great example of that. It was originally published in Poetry Magazine in 2013, I think the April issue. And, and it's the title poem of her 2014 book. So it is, which I need to get. Usually I recommend the book, but I haven't read the book. I read it in poetry when I had a subscription, which I should get again. But, you know. It's tough to keep up with everything. It's tough. They just keep coming. I think you can be forgiven. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. A woman without a country. As dawn breaks, he enters a room with the odor of acid. He lays the copper plate on the table and reaches for the shaft of the Buren. Dublin wakes to horses and rain. Street hawkers call. All the news is famine and famine. The flat graver, the round graver, the angle tint tool wait for him. He bends to his work and begins. He starts with the head cutting in to the line of the cheek, finding the slope of the skull, incising the shape of a face that becomes a foundry of shadows, rendering with a deeper cut into copper, the whole woman as a skeleton, the rags of her skirt, her wrist in a bony line forever severing, her body from its native air until she is ready for the page, for the street vendor, for a new inventory, which now to loss and to laissez-faire adds the odor of acid and the little pitiless tragedy of being imagined. He puts his tools away one by one, lays them out carefully on the deal table, his work done. Great pick. I love this poem. Yeah, I really enjoy it. I was not familiar with this poem. Um, the poem I most knew her for was, the title escapes me, but it's about the two people who die of cold during the famine. Oh, I don't, I don't know if I know that one. I think it's called Quarantine. Okay, Quarantine. And it's about these people, 
I believe it's based on a, a real thing that happened where this guy um, died with his wife out in the cold because they were trying to make their way like from their cabin to town or something. And he had put his, uh, her feet against his body to try and keep them warm. And they died like that. Oh, my God. That's terrifying. Um, <laughs> I mentioned that because the way that this poem is written is much more, for lack of a better term, poetic than that work and mm -hmm. the work that I mostly know from her. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, that would be interesting to look at. She's, so she obviously, she was born in 1944. I think her first book of poems came out in 1962. So this is 2013 coming out. So like six decades of published writing. So she's had some time to hone her craft. So starting sort of broadly about what the poem is about, the, the action of the poem is basically some nameless man enters, seems like uh, his metal working studio or area or a foundry of some kind cuts out like a metal contour of a woman and then finishes it. That's basically, I think, the basic plot. Oh, I think we're also meant to understand that it's uh, an engraving plate to be used for a newspaper. Ooh, that's key. Okay, so thank you, Jack. So this is probably not a foundry. This is probably the newspaper office or something. Or... I don't know. I don't or it's know. his room. It's sort of unclear where it happens. There's no strong yeah. sense of place in it. And yeah. even the idea of it being for a newspaper, I think, is at best hinted at. I do I do think that's what's going on. But yeah, that I makes think, a lot of sense. Because um, at the beginning, you're told what's going on in the news and the street hawkers are calling and you're out in the street. Then he's in this room making all of this. And then at the end, a new inventory goes out to the street vendors with, I think we're meant to understand this images on it. That is a good reading. And that there was a question that I had about like what exactly this is going for. Uh, but I think that's probably right. Um, but yeah, and then moving into the sort of broader, um, I guess the way that I start thinking about this poem is there's, I think like a sort of specific uh, larger meaning to Ireland and Ireland history and then sort of a broader meeting that can be extended um, about like women and the patriarchy generally. And so specifically, I actually read this poem as happening in the Great Famine um, or around then in 1847. Um, in, in, we have Dublin wakes to horses and rain. So we have horses, that's a sense of when it is. And then all the news is famine and famine. Um, which seems to be very sort of direct. Um, and then also the laissez-faire, I've done a little bit of research, but one common attribution or like cause of the famine was the British laissez-faire policy that they had at the time. Um, so I think that that is sort of a reference to that. Um, and then more broadly, there's a long history in Ireland of sort of like nationalist poems, literature, writing, speeches, ideas that use uh, the woman or an idea of the woman 
um, as the call to like nationalist action. One example of this is I think it's pronounced the Eisling or the Aisling, which was a sort of oral poem, like vision poem in the 16 and 1700s, um, where this guy would receive this sort of vision of this goddess woman who was like known as a spare van or something. Um, and she would like seduce him into inspiration to like fight for Ireland before, you know, and get independence. That's like one beginning that, you know, even po poets like Yeats who never wrote like Aislings would still sort of draw on uh, to some extent. Um, and that carries on, I think, through. So I think she, the image of the little pitiless tragedy of being imagined, um, which I think is like a great line, is has to do with the use of women in, in Irish literature and writing and politics as a, as a prop or an object for their nationalist sort of cause. It's really interesting, and I know that Boland herself, I saw a talk that she gave, um, and she talked about what it was like growing up in what she described as a small country with intense history, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then talked about how her own understanding of that came from thinking of history and the past as two distinct ideas, and that history is this received official version that contains heroic figures and uh, to some extent, a lack of nuance, and that the past is where you meet real people and you find the shadows and the shade. Her poetry, I think a lot of it, is grounded in telling historical stories and in doing so through bringing you people-level accounts. The other poem I mentioned, Quarantine, is about two people. It's not about the major socio-political forces. It's not about some heroic figure. It's not about divine inspiration. It's about this human moment between two people at the end of their lives. This poem, similarly, is essentially one guy's day at work. It's a lot more complicated than that, but basically this guy goes to work, does his job, and then leaves. Yeah. It reminds me of, actually, the Yusuf Komanyaka Urban Renewal um, in, in the way yeah. that the title works, too. So the title of this, A Woman Without a Country, very big thematic stuff. Um, and similarly... Urban renewal has sort of larger, you know, political implications. And then the content of the poem, with some very important exceptions, are largely just a sort of physical description of someone doing, as you say, their day job, basically. Uh, whereas urban renewal sort of focuses on the, the physical sort of demolition of a, of a building. True. And if you want to hear us talk about urban renewal, check out <laughs> the second episode of Close Talking, where we talk about Yusuf Kumanyaka's urban renewal. We do. We do it. Um, I'm very interested in the title because in going through the poem the first time, as opposed to making it easier for me to understand it, I think it was challenging me because I could see where the woman comes in, obviously, but I could not initially see where the without a country comes from. And I have a couple ideas about that, but I'm interested on what your thoughts are about a woman without a country. Yeah, so, and and just before I specifically get into that, the that was the, there was the Ireland specific meaning 
um, that I talked about. And then broadly, which we can, well, I think we'll just permeate our discussion, but I think there's a very women being used for men's ends and, and like the projection of an idea of a woman has, I think, very broad universal applicability. I think about all these movies and TV plot lines where the man becomes, you know that the man is redeemed because he gets the lady at the end. Um, and similarly, like the whole, you know, this is another smaller example, but um, the implications of like catcalling is is based around the idea that a woman exists for the men just to be looked at and, and there she's in her in their space to be commented on. Um, and the, the result of that, because it's an imagining, is we have all these, like, you know, we talk about the unrealistic expectations or demands put on women, like, to be, look a certain way, et cetera. Um, and those sort of things are working hand in hand that I think this poem speaks to, although it, it is focusing a little more specifically on Ireland. I'm interested in the idea of imagining because essentially this woman is only ever imagined. Like this is not a real woman. This right. is not a real person. She's brought into being by this male artist. We get two people who we actually spend time with, people in air quotes that you can't see because this is audio, um, but I'm air quoting. <laughs> we get a he and a she. The he is the artist and the she is this sort of creation of his, this piece that he engraves. First, she's his idea of whatever he's trying to convey. And then once she's out in the world, we're told that she falls into the pitiless tragedy of being imagined. Now it's everyone else writing onto this image of her, yeah, whatever they want. She herself as an image is never given her own agency, is never given her own place or a central existence or idea. She's just hungry woman number four. Think of her what you will. Right, right. Yeah, so that's very interesting. Yeah, so getting to the title you've asked about, where I start to make sense of it is in the lines, um, I guess starting, the whole woman as a skeleton, the rags of her skirt, her wrist in a bony line forever severing, her body from its native air until she is ready for the page. So one also formal note that we can talk about later is this is a very interesting part where the whole poem is basically one stanza of um, lines that are all pretty similar length. So like the first two lines are, as dawn breaks, he enters, line break a room with the odor of acid. And then the, the line, the, the poem just continues downward. Severing the word um, is broken off and has its sort of own line below in a bony line forever. And then it's like line break and then severing is indented. Um, so it sort of like hovers uh, to the lower right of forever. Um, so I, I want to say that because it, it's not, when you hear it, you can't actually see that effect. But um, the line severing her body from its native air seems to be the closest image to a woman without a country. So native air has that country um, aesthetic. And I guess the way that I 
think about it is when this woman and women are used in this way, they become useful if it's like a national propaganda type thing, or even just some sort of political, used politically. They are useful in that context, but then are not able to actually have a, either like an agency, political agency in the making of some country, or just like are not free to be the strange human people that every human is. And so in that way, they lose their country because they lose their ability to move freely about that native air because they're just being fixed into the image of the political situation. That's sort of what I'm thinking, but I, I don't know if that's fleshed out yeah. very well. I like that a lot. Um, I, that whole little section was really interesting to me, and particularly the fact that severing as a line literally severs the poem into two yeah. parts. I really liked that as a as a line break and as a stylistic choice, because it would be easy to put that word on its own, but to take it and to put it essentially right justified as opposed to left justified so that it's at the edge of all of the text way over there, it creates that blank space separating the poem, which I think is pretty cool. And when I was thinking about that little, that line in particular and, and the severing, the image I had was of an engraver literally scraping her form out of the native air of the blank piece of copper. And it made me think of the Michelangelo quote about essentially like the, the form is within the block of marble and the artist sees it and carves it out, uh, um, which I actually went and got because I think it's interesting because uh, it sort of covers, I think, a lot of the artistic journey that we see in the creation of this image. And the quote is fairly short. In every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it. Ooh, that's nice. And so again, when there's the blank piece of copper, you could create any image or story, any type of woman. When you're writing a poem, as even Bolin is, or as another writer in the Irish tradition, there's any woman you can create artistically with your craft, but if when you look at that copper, or if when you look at that marble, you have a particular vision, and you know what you intend to wring out of that raw material, and what you bring out is to show others the way you see it, if you're a man, engraver, and you want to draw famine woman, or whatever, I mean, that's essentially what I take from it. It could be different, but I think that's what we're, we're led yeah. to believe it is. A whole woman as a skeleton, the rags of her skirt. And famine. if that's what you're seeing, and that's and you're carving it out as sort of a representation, this is a woman without a nation. She doesn't have anything of her own. She's your vision that you've carved out of the copper. And then, as the end of the Michelangelo quote says, an apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it, everyone else also just imagines things onto her. The other eyes see it the same way. Yeah, no, that, I agree completely. 
it's interesting too the i feel like there's a lot of things that can be read in a few different ways and the one way that i i just really love that part the whole woman is a skeleton the rags for skirt her wrist and a bony line forever severing um because skeleton and rags of her skirt gets at the sort of visual image of you know an actual famished uh woman but also gets at the symbolic so you know a woman without a country also a woman without flesh just a bony you know wrist and skeleton so that that is in some way also what's being removed um and then i like to I, i'm glad you brought up the the line break of severing the other thing that it also does is draw attention not just to severing which it certainly does and and that sort of um, miming effect that the line break has of sort of replicating the severing is what is what you're talking about is also it also draws attention to uh, the word forever so there's um, in a bony line forever line break severing her body from its native air so we get the sense of this poem reaching out from the time of which it's sort of recording and and saying this is a forever process this is happening this has been happening and this effect is not just isolated to a the day in the life of this engraver man or in ireland in the 19th century um, or ireland specifically but has this larger um, reach definitely no and the the specificity in that section of the poem as well yeah where sort of the implications are the largest but the language becomes the most specific mm -hmm. and the most intense in many ways yeah. like this is the most descriptive section that we get in the poem and it is where those larger sort of themes and implications are really at play and the language choice is fascinating to me and the way that the act is described there's cutting, incision, severing, skeleton, skull, bony. There's a lot of S sounds for one, but it also is like kind of medical and surgical, which I thought yeah. was really interesting. And like all of this, the way that the two lines fall, he starts with the head cutting in is a line on its own. And then you get to the line of the cheek, finding the slope of the skull in sizing. And again, the line stops at incising, finding the slope of the skull and incising. It sounds like he's cutting her head open. Yeah. In both of those instances, at first it sounds like he's just drawing a knife across her face. And then in the next one, it sounds like he's gonna cut her head open. Like it's really, the first time reading through, I was like, where is this going? Cause number one, unless you know what a burin is or like uh what are the other ones a round graver and a flat graver and an angle tint tool unless you happen to be familiar with the engraving arts which maybe you are you might be a, a more worldly person than myself i'm I had to for look sure that that. yeah <laughs> me too and i was like oh so this dude's like an engraver at yeah. first i'm like what what is going on here with this bro like what's his deal um, <laughs> I sort of assumed he wasn't, I mean, it's pretty clear that he's, you know, not cutting people open is what I'm going for here. Like, he's not a surgeon, he's not cutting people open. It was pretty clear he's an artist of some kind, but 
not knowing necessarily what the exact tools are, it's hard to form an image and the way the language comes together in that area is really giving you this sort of medical feel, particularly the time period that it's being written in, the sort of patriarchal role of medicine and surgery. And Yeah, I'm glad you brought that section up. Uh, I totally, <laughs> I like looked up what a graver was and I was like, oh, it, it's an engraver. Great. Okay. I'm mm -hmm. figuring it out. Um, that was my but, guess with those ones, but I was like, what is a burin? Yeah, what is a burin? It's How do you say it? Is it a burin? Is it a burin? Is it a burin? I, you said burin, and you're super Irish, so I figured that you knew. I also looked that up, and I pressed my little uh, pronounce, pronounce thing on dictionary.com app, and it was like, burin. So then I did burin. Cool. But I'm it there. also looked like you could also say burin. So... Uh, we leave it up to that. But I like that you bring up these line breaks. Um, he starts with the head, cutting in, line break to the line of the cheek, finding. Uh, one small like uh, note about the pacing, this is these, these enjambments come very deliberately. So before that, um, except for the first line, every line ends with either a full stop period or like a comma. So the first line, as dawn breaks, he enters enjambment, a room with the odor of acid, but then full stop. And then things really slow down. Every line is its own discrete thought. And it's really like um, intensely intentional. He lays the copper plate on the table, period, and reaches for the shaft of the Buren, period. That could easily be one sentence. There's no reason, like he lays a copper plate on the table and reaches for the shaft of the beer. You could easily do that in one sentence, but Bolin is like very discreetly um, slowing things down. Then, da 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 da, getting the stuff together, Dublin, horses, rain, getting the tools, famine. Then he bends to his work and begins, full stop. And then as soon as he begins his work, the enjambments begin. So then the next line, he starts with the head, cutting in to the line of the cheek, finding the slope of the skull, incising the shape of a face that becomes a foundry of shadows. And then um, things finally slow down. But there's... Uh, but even then, that, yeah. that sentence doesn't end until the pitiless tragedy of being imagined. Yeah. Yep. That sentence, with punctuation sprinkled in, is... But the, the whole, it's half the poem. Yeah, so that's... And oh, on yeah. both sides of it, you get really short sentences, but that, that one really stands out. So that, so after he bends to his work and begins, the sentence is 16 lines long. I just counted with my finger. Um, <laughs> or maybe 17 if you count severing in its own line. And then, and before that, basically, everything has been a one-line sentence, uh, and things get short after that. So, to be clear, counting severing—that's seventeen lines in a thirty-line poem. Yeah, that's a long-ass sentence, um, and many of those are enjammed. The other thing too that I really like, uh, this sonically, it's so tight and. Um, intentional is there's a lot of um n 
M and like I N sounds at the ends of the lines. So we have Buren, rain, famine, him, begins, cutting in, finding, incising, rendering, skeleton. Those are in the first sort of half, those are ends, ends of all lines. And then there's a pause, and this is, I think, is interesting, and especially in the when the enjambments start, so he bends to his work and begins, the first four are begins cutting in, finding, and sizing. So those are really emphasized, those sounds. Then, and, and this, I think, is intentional because this is when we were, if you remember, this is the lines, these are some of the lines that we were focusing on, which Bolin is drawing attention to, um, a foundry of shadows rendering with a deeper cut into copper, the whole woman as a skeleton, the rags of her skirt, her wrist and a bony line forever. That's sort of the enjambment stop. And then we focus on that. And then there are no, in that kind of thing, no INs at the ends of lines. And then her wrist in a bony line forever severing. And severing is the next instance of that kind of, IN or ING sound. So the and also has it with that connotation of cutting in and incising with the sort of removing action. So I think Boland is setting up our ear uh, to hear these um, sort of like IN sounds and then is like changing the structure so that we focus on that whole woman as a skeleton image, which is like very central. And then when she returns for like her killer verb, severing, she puts it on her own line. It's like hovering weirdly. And we remember the echoes of all of the IN words uh, before that cutting in, finding, incising, et cetera. Definitely. I think severing is also to some extent set up uh, by the number of S sounds that pervade in there. Because yeah. in those, particularly the two lines, the slope of the skull incising the shape of a face, the s sound in there is just over and over and over and over again. And then you get the rags of her skirt, her wrist, as a little callback to that right before you hit severing, which is the IN and the S sound in one word, all on its own. It's come to this. There is no other option, no way out. And forever severing is a perfect couple with the ER sounds. It just, it's like so tight, forever severing. So, uh, I mean, it's a work, it's a sonic gold nugget right there. Right That's there, and she's framed it for you on its own line. She is good, and no big deal. It's also a perfect encapsulation in two words of what an engraver does for a living. They are forever severing. They are always taking small slivers of metal out to create an image. And in this work, that's the severing. He's severing her body from its native air, cutting it out. Yeah. Bonkers yeah. how good that is. I know. I mean, mm. I mean, that is... Let's, I mean, how many different elements are working together? We've got the visual image working together. We've got the rhyming working together. We've got the rhythm working together. We've got the lineation 
working together, the lines and the line lengths. We've got the symbol. I mean, that's that's like five different things. That's literally all a poem is. Are those five things? I, so I think this is the definition of next level shit right here. It is so next level. I have one other larger point that I think is really cool about this poem. So the poem is drawing attention to the way this particular woman, but women in general, as we've said, are often used, objectified, severed out uh, to be props or objects for some cause or some desire that men want. This poem subtly, A, it draws attention to that. So that's its first job. But the other thing that it does is I think carve out a space where it's severing the sort of man who does this work into the history. So we have just this he guy who's doing nothing, um, or I mean, he's doing a lot, but you only see what he does physically. There's no interiority to this guy. He doesn't have a name. He doesn't really know anyone. Um, he's just a worker. And so in this way, he has been stripped of a lot of his humanness um, in a way perhaps similarly that women are in the, in the kinds of things that Boland is, is calling out. So I think by this, this poem is in its rewriting of, in its rewriting of political history and, and Irish history and history generally, it's placing a carve out of a man who's writing the carve out of women. So I think that's one of the functions that it, that it has. What's really interesting about that too, is that this man will be forgotten and that engraving will live on. Yeah. Just in terms of what's going on in the history and for her own distinction of the difference between history and the past, this woman is history, problematic, not encompassing and in fact detrimental to women but she's history, and this man is what Boland discusses as the past. He's the everyday person who would create this kind of an image, perpetuate this notion of a mythic female or a woman upon whom the desires of others could be written, but he himself plays no part in that history. He's relegated to the past. I'm curious, so at the beginning, I mentioned that I think this might be an engraving for a newspaper. Yeah. Engravings themselves were also sold do we think it might just be that she's an engraving that gets made to be sold to an individual? I was sort of unsure because it specifically says that she moves on to the pitiless tragedy of being imagined. Perhaps in my own desire for grandiosity, I'm imagining thousands of people looking at newspapers with her image in it that he created to represent some story about the famine and they're all looking at it and making up ideas about her. And it's this widely disseminated imagining that's in many ways more harmful. But I think it's also possible that he's just making this as something that goes out to a street vendor. They sell it. He gets the money. The vendor gets the money and everybody moves on. He makes another one tomorrow. That's interesting. Both seem possible. The way that the hawkers and the vendors um, and the fact that she's ready for the page, I, that's a good question. I, I lean towards the newspaper. Reading. I do too. Yeah. I think it's it's up in the air. To me, though, the way that the up in the air part works, the ambiguity works, is she's ready for the page 
can be read more easily as like the page as in writing literature, the canon, those things generally. Um, she's And she's ready to be sold for the street vendor. Right. So um, to me, that's, that's where I depart from in terms of the ambiguity of the phrase. I like it. The last thing I want to note quickly, it's not, it's just something I liked in the poem is that she uses the more historical term deal table to basically mean like a plain work table, which I really enjoy coming so quickly after laissez-faire and this picture going out to a vendor to get sold. Because even though it's describing the table, it's another deal as associated with like a money deal. It's just another nice resonance that she happens to get out of it because she could have said a plain pine table or something and like, oh, you get a nice little alliteration like whatever. But the deal table grounds it in the history and it also is just a nice resonant word to have in that place. And I think that was really well-crafted as a, yeah. an unnecessarily good little chunk of, of poetic decision-making. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I like that you brought that up. The last thing too that I'll bring up about the last two lines that I love is there's a sort of hidden rhyme. I think that myself included, I'm always tempted to have rhyming couplet at the end because it's just, you just, it's that cathartic, satisfying, we're done, we got the perfect shit going down, but it's very obvious, hard to do, etc. but you still want it. So Boland, goes, he puts his tools away, line break, one by one, lays them out carefully on the deal table, his work done. So one by one rhymes with his work done, but one by one is sort of hidden in the middle, beginning middle of the second to last line, and done finishes the last line. So I think that's a nice little, nice little trick. It's good. Also, depending on how you pronounce words, you have the away and carefully <laughs> beforehand. So that's true. That could be that could be <laughs> Boland's Irish accent, carefully. <laughs> Somehow I don't think so, but yeah, probably that. It's all um, going down. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, and I like that. That's real good. <laughs> oh God, I think we have to read it. Yeah, let's, let's read it again. All right, all right. <clears throat> a woman without a country. As dawn breaks, he enters a room with the odor of acid. He lays the copper plate on the table and reaches for the shaft of the Buren. Dublin wakes to horses and rain. Street hawkers call. All the news is famine and famine. The flat graver the round graver, the angle tint tool wait for him. He bends to his work and begins. He starts with the head, cutting in to the line of the cheek, finding the slope of the skull, incising the shape of a face that becomes a foundry of shadows, rendering with a deeper cut into copper, the whole woman as a skeleton the rags of her skirt, her wrist in a bony line forever severing her body from its native air until she is ready for the page, 
for the street vendor, for a new inventory, which now to loss and to laissez-faire adds the odor of acid and the little pitiless tragedy of being imagined. He puts his tools away one by one, lays them out carefully on the deal table, his work done. Good stuff. That does it for this episode of Close Talking. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to stay up to date on the latest Close Talking news or find old episodes, be sure to check out iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, where you can subscribe to Close Talking. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at Jack Rossiter Munn for me, at Hot Sauce Boxed for Connor, and at Close Talking for the show. If you have thoughts on this conversation, different readings of this poem, or any of the other poems we've discussed, or if you have suggestions for poems that you'd like us to talk about in the future, please send us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.